If you would uh, go ahead and start turning in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I just want to ask a question uh, that I think is very important to how we understand this series, and I think it's very important to uh, how, how we think about even the book of Daniel. Um, and I think it's a question that you have to kind of s- spend some time with, and so it may not be something you can answer right now, but how do your circumstances affect your relationship with God? Because it does, and they do, right? And, and it's, it's not something that, uh, that is, is always the same. It changes over time. I can't tell you how often part of what I have to deal with in pastoral ministry is just helping people uh, reconcile that their, their time and their ability to study and what they can give and get back out sometimes changes, whether it's season in life with children whether it's a season in life in school, whether it's a season in life with a job change, an illness, all of those circumstances deeply affect what, what, what is our relationship with God oftentimes. Now, what should have the greatest impact on our relationship with God? What should actually be most consistent with how we relate with Him? Well, it ought to be our understanding of who He is. And his promises, which for us on this side of the cross and the resurrection and the ascension, is beautifully displayed in the person work of Jesus Christ. Right? It's Christ that should help frame out. Because remember how one, one author says, he says, he is the yes and the amen. And that is a reference to a yes to all of God's promises and an amen to the fulfillment of those promises in him. And so for us, there needs to be that continuity and consistency, though some things may change. I know some struggle if you go from a season where you can spend a lot of time in biblical study, or you're, like for a lot of folks who are in seminary, it's an interesting time. And when you, when you transition out of seminary and you're not swimming in all of that theology anymore, it does affect you. And so there's times when we transition that we really struggle and we think our relationship has changed, let me give you the good news. God doesn't love you more or less based on the amount of time that you spend reading His Word and doing a number of other things. But what He does do is He honors the time that you do put in, and He helps you to use that to understand how much He loves you. And it helps you to understand what it is we are called to be and do as ambassadors of reconciliation because it's not that we are redeemed for no purpose. No, we're we're redeemed for a purpose. And remember, the church has one job. One. We get tangled up in lots and lots of stuff, but what's our one job? Discipleship. And that, unfortunately, is a word that is loaded for many of us, and we kind of minimize and think that it only means if you sit down and go through uh, the book of Romans at some point, or which is a good thing to do, or the book of Judges, which is also a good thing to do, uh, or something like that. Discipleship is all of life. It is how you frame out and live all of life, how the, your relationship with God influences and affects your politics. Your, your job, your family, your, how you deal with school, how you deal with being in a, a ministry of some kind or a fraternity or a sorority or any of those things, all of that is an opportunity. All of life has discipleship components to it. It's whether or not you're aware of that and making some sort of use of that and understanding that to pray for it and see it for what it ought to be instead of only seeing discipleship as a scheduled time.
No, all of life. It's one of the reasons in the book of Deuteronomy it says, as far as how we're to disciple our children, what does it say do? When you do what? When you sit, when you walk, when you stand, you should have it in every part of your being. It should be everywhere. Now, does that mean that uh, with your children, uh, every, everything that you do has to have a Bible verse associated with it? Right? Is it, is it that you, is it that you, um, uh, you're cooking chicken and, and the, one of your children comes in and you have to say something, some platitude, so they understand this chicken is from the Lord. It's not a bad thing for them to know that that chicken does come from the Lord in a variety of ways. Don't get me wrong, but don't, don't be weird. Uh, don't be weirder than you need to be. Can we say it like that? <laughs> and so, so but, but, but it is something that is all of life. It should permeate. It should, should come out of us. The yes and the amen in Christ ought to be present for us in all circumstances. Amen? And so, as we approach the book of Daniel, it's very important that from the start we recognize this is not a book that is intended to give you a model for how to live your life to, 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 to be a Daniel. In the sense that you try to do exactly what he does. No, the part that you should model is his faith in the promises of God, which allow him to endure 70 years in exile. Did you know that Daniel never comes home? Never. And he left when he was 14 or 15. He dies in Babylon. Do you notice that his parents are never mentioned in the book? Do you know why? Because he was separated from them. We don't know what happened to Daniel's parents. He was separated from them from the start, and he never gets to see them again, to the best that we know. It's never mentioned. Now, that is not something that we would say, hey, sign me up for that. I'll do 70 years in exile. But the reality is that it happened. Daniel finds himself in exile. He and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and, and they end up being able to be a witness for the Lord under difficult circumstances because of their clinging to the promises of God as being true. In fact, Daniel, for those of you who kind of wrestle with Jeremiah 29, Daniel is the practical explication of that verse. It is. Daniel does what is they're told to do, which is help the place where you are to prosper. And I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and all these things. Daniel is able to do what he does because he knows the people of God are going to get to come back when the 70 years is up. In fact, we're going to see he wrestles specifically with the text from Jeremiah in one of the later chapters about the 70 years. What if you knew that that was going to be your fate? 70 years in exile, no freedoms the way you once knew them. And yet, yet you would be challenged as to whether or not you would worship the Lord your God. Are you going to trust him? Are you going to, instead, are you going to be assimilated into the culture? And so Daniel is about the sovereignty and the faithfulness of God and how people, when they take that seriously, their lives can be transformed and have an impact in even the darkest of places. What's interesting is, uh, just as a small footnote about the Daniel diet, if any of you have done the Daniel diet, what I find interesting about the Daniel diet is like biblically it should make you gain weight. Makes you kind of plumper and fatter so that you, 
So I don't know that we're doing it right. If you're, if you're losing weight on the Daniel diet, it's not biblical, just FYI. Uh, so, so I always found that kind of intriguing. Um, but that aside, listen to what O. Palmer Robertson says about the book of Daniel, because this is critical for us to understand. He says, the whole book of Daniel works from this perspective of a prophesied coming kingdom of God that shall supersede all the earthly kingdoms of this world. The assumption of the book is that God has a plan that will consummate in his kingdom, replacing all earthly temporal powers. Daniel, as God's representative in the kingdom of Babylon, appears as the inspired presenter of this universal divine plan. Shorter way to say that is Daniel is a foreshadow of Christ. He represents, in a sense, that God will be victorious and that all of the kings that rise and fall, the bad ones who don't last and the good ones who don't last, will one day cast down their crowns before the feet of the king of all. And it is not for us to try to manipulate and fashion things so that we get what we want. In fact, one of the reasons that they're in this mess, if you read um, 2 Kings 20, is that they had been maneuvering politically to try to protect themselves. King Hezekiah had brought in the envoy from Babylon to show them all the wonderful things from the house of the Lord. And he wanted Babylon to protect them from Assyria and Egypt because he didn't trust the Lord. The people of God did not trust the Lord. And they did all of this political maneuvering and wrangling. And where did it land them? Exile. Now, does that sound at all like something we need to hear today? All of the political maneuvering and wrangling and seeking after safety and security at the hands of man will never ever accomplish what it is we think it will accomplish. Now, this, did I just say don't vote? Is that what, who heard that? Because that's not what I said. In fact, you should vote very intelligently. You should vote with conviction. You should vote with a biblical worldview. You should put some effort into this. You should. Now, should you put more effort into that than you do knowing God's promises? No. No, God's promises are what's going to hold you when maybe you discover that what you voted for doesn't bring about what you had hoped. Or that it was far more complex than we've tried to simplify it. And that we need to hear yet again that God reigns and his promises are true and that no matter the kings that rise and fall and the countries that come and go, remember, we're not what's permanent. The kingdom is. The country is not. The kingdom is. Which is why we read what we read from Matthew so that we have an understanding of the coming of the kingdom that is greater than any singular nation on the earth. Very important for us as we go into this. And it's also important for us to understand that, yes, the book of Daniel is about prophecy, but it's more about prophecy that's being fulfilled, actually, than about prophecy that will come. See, what's happening here is God's severe faithfulness to do what he said he would do. He warned them in Leviticus 25 and 26. He said, listen, how you treat the poor, how you treat the Sabbath, how you treat these things matters. 
you would do yourself a good service by reading Leviticus 25 and 26 as background to the entire book of Daniel. And you will notice God's great grace in 26 when he says, and if you violate my covenant, he gives them step by step where he says, I'm going to do this first to try to rouse you and bring you back to me. And if that doesn't work, I'm going to do this. And if that doesn't work, I'm going to do this. And if that doesn't work, I'm going to send you into exile. And why does he send us into exile? Why does he send them into exile? To show them that he loves them, actually. And that he will endure the shame that is going to come to his name. Do you understand what the people of Babylon will say about Marduk, their God, as they carry away the things from the house of the Lord, which we'll read in just a moment. Do you understand how they're going to say, our God reigns? Now, Nebuchadnezzar will see that as evidence that he is the greatest king in all of the world. Yahweh has been defeated. God will endure the shame to his own name so that we would be roused to come back to him. Does this story sound familiar? What does he endure in Jesus? For the shame that was, for the joy that was set before him, Christ endured the shame of the cross. It's that great moment in the, in the movies about the Chronicles of Narnia when Aslan is, is dead and all of hell breaks out in joy. What a great picture. And I imagine the same happened for the three days that he laid in the grave. All of hell celebrated the exception of when he rose again. And they knew it was over. And so here God is giving us a picture of his love for his people. He warns them again and again and again. And then he has to, what we refer to as a severe faithfulness, he has to do what he said he would do. That is background. Let's look at the text. We'll start with verses 1 and 2. <coughs> Hear God's word. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now what's interesting here is, who is it that's actually at work? Who determines what's happening here? God does. Now, why is that comforting? They're being carried off. It looks like defeat. Well, remember, as we said when we went through the book of Job, we said, listen, sovereignty is both that which raises a ton of questions, but it is the answer to the question. If God is not sovereign, this looks hopeless because they're carrying off the very contents of the house of God, which is to signal to everyone the defeat of God himself. But we see in the book of Daniel, straight away, it says God orchestrated it. And if you were to read uh, 2 Kings 24, 1 through 7, you would see the same language. It's a recounting of this specific instance. And it says God sends them into exile. God does this. And again, he's doing what he said he would do in Leviticus 26. He's doing what he warned them of. Now, is that cruelty? 
Is it cruel if I have warned you and I have warned you and I have warned you and it has come to pass every warning what I said would happen happens as you're arcing toward exile? Is that cruel to your grace? It's actually grace. One, as we know as parents, is it good parenting to say to your child, now if you don't stop that, I'm going to, I told you to stop. Now listen, Johnny. We don't have any Johnnies in here, do we? I hope not. Maybe one or two. Listen, Johnny, I told you to stop it, but we never come through on our promise. What kind of child does that tend to produce? According to parenting? Serial killer, I think. No, I'm just kidding. Not, not, not entirely. Uh, but a child who, who doesn't trust you as a parent, actually. It actually destroys your credibility with that child, even though they're getting what they want. Isn't that interesting? We know that's just science. That's not even just religion. We know that scientifically. And so here God is gracious enough to warn them actually several hundred years in advance and gives them markers so they know what's coming if they don't change. So gracious to us that he gives us all this time. And yet the world looks at it and says, your God is tarrying. No, our God is patient. He is kind. He's gentle, he's loving, forgiving to thousands upon thousands. Our God is good. Even in his severity, he's good. And so we see straight away that it is God who sends them in exile. And so for those of you who know the history of this, it happens in three waves. First wave is in about 605 or so BC and then 597 and 587. Daniel's in the first wave. He's about 14 or 15 years old. Can you imagine? For those of you who are teenagers, can you imagine someone showing up here today and grabbing you and saying, you don't live where you thought you lived anymore. You're ours. And you will do what I say, and you will do what I tell you to do, or I will kill you. Can you imagine? This has happened in other parts of history. If you hear any of the stories of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, or in Romania, or in the Sudan, or in, we could go on and on. Now, what did Daniel do to deserve, at 14 or 15 years old, what did he do to deserve exile? Or any of his friends? Doesn't tell us specifically. And we're going to discover that he's from probably a fairly prominent family because when the king calls for subjects, he wants nobility and and those who are from the the higher classes within um, Judah's life. So do you... Do you think that Daniel thought this was fair? Well, he doesn't ever really say. It doesn't mean he's so super spiritual that he doesn't wrestle because we're going to see him grieve and in sorrow. Those of you, are, are, how many of you are familiar with the story of Kayla Mueller? A young lady from Arizona who served as an aid worker in Syria. She went over to help Doctors Without Borders and and a couple of other organizations. And usually aid workers are off limits, but um, the game is changing. In fact, there were just a number of aid workers who were violated, beaten in a horrific way in the Sudan. Actually, they were holed up in a compound. And it's one of the first times that aid workers have been a target. Well, Kayla Mueller was a target, uh, and as were several Doctors Without Borders. And she was held, I think, for about 18 months. And the story, it's worth you reading, 2020 just recently did a, a show on her. Uh, she was a believer. And, uh, and her, 
her, the way she carried herself and cared for other people while she was in exile of this fashion that was not her fault, by the way. She was serving for someone else's crimes, in a sense. Um, and she would be brutally murdered. Brutalized over the 18 months, and yet her testimony continues. As you read the story, it's an amazing thing that you read. And in fact, um, there are some questions to whether or not Doctors Without Borders suppressed information that could have actually gotten her released. There's also some questions of whether or not uh, our own administration did some things that, that um, and I'm sure there's, there, there's two sides to every story. I understand there's lots of complexity to things like this, but it's just painful when you're reading about this child's suffering. She's in her early 20s, and the, what she endured on a day-in, day-out basis, they kept her in solitary confinement for most of the time, used her as a sex slave a good bit of the time, beat her often, uh, and yet, she would leave notes for people and share the gospel. She actually shared the gospel with Jihadi John, uh, who was vaporized by a drone. Um, and so, so, sometimes things just aren't fair. And I, I think that fair is the wrong question for us as Christians. It's not about what's fair. It's about opportunity. Everything is opportunity. Remember, all of life is discipleship. And see, Daniel and his friends are not spending their time in despair over whether or not this is fair. Daniel straight away tells us, no, this is from the hand of the Lord. God is sovereign. All things come from him. That doesn't answer every question, by the way. Now, does it? It doesn't mean that you shouldn't ask questions and wrestle either. But it does mean sometimes there's just bad questions. And so what we have from Daniel and his friends, we're going to see is that he is going to evidence uh, just a, 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 an amazing faith in the promises of the Lord. And so, so as, as they are being led away into exile, it is the promises of God that buffet and sustain them, and that is true for us today, whether you're in exile or not. Amen? Listen to what Ian Duguid says about this passage. He says, the recognition that their fate came from the hand of God as a faithful act of judgment was itself an encouragement to the exiles. Their future was not controlled by Babylon or its gods, but by the Lord. The God of heaven, the one who had sent them into exile, had also promised to be with them there and ultimately to restore them from exile after a time of judgment. Do you, do you ever struggle with whether or not your circumstances are fair? It's a tough question because I know some of you are going through some things that just seem inexplicable. I'm with you, and trust me, as the guy who kind of, I feel like, holds the bag on God's behalf sometimes, as the one that is oftentimes looked to, hey, Give me an answer for this, man. You're the guy out there talking about God all the time and Jesus, and you've got a degree. Give me an answer for this. Trust me, there's times I turn to God and say, please, relent. Let this up. Give them some air. Because I don't have all the answers. And yet, what I cling to is what I'm seeing unfold in Daniel, what Ian Duguid points to, which is that God's faithfulness and his promises undergird everything. And that if, if it is left up to forces other than God, we have no hope at all. In fact, I just spent time with a good friend of mine yesterday 
who's really struggling. And I love him deeply, and he just, he is, he's, just, he's just wrestling with whether or not God loves him. And he says, you know, how, how, do I, how do we deal with Satan and all this stuff? And I said, well, let's do this. If Satan is who the Bible says he is, then who does the Bible say he is? The one who wants to destroy you. In toto, by the way. He's not looking for Marilyn Manson-esque followers. Like, you all gothed up, doesn't do Satan any good. In fact, you're kind of ruining his brand. What he wants is for people to be confused about who God is, not clear on who he is. Right? That'll be clear enough in the end. But what he, what he wants is your total destruction because you bear the image. And what he wants is the destruction of the glory of God. That's what the, if, if that's who he is, right? What does it mean for us if he is somehow equal in power with God? What does that mean for you and me? We're cannon fodder. We're caught in the middle of an eternal Star Wars-esque war that has episodes that go on into the future ad infinitum. Right? So, so, our hope is that God is who he says he is, and the Bible says he is, which is sovereign and able to say to Satan, you can only go so far. Doesn't answer the question as to why he lets him go as far as he does. It doesn't. And it doesn't answer the question as to why he allows what he allows to happen. It just doesn't. But what undergirds all of that his promise and love, love that he has for his children, which is mysterious and bigger than one worship service can handle, which is why we're going to worship for an eternity. That's how big it is. And so I wish that some of your circumstances were more fair. I wish, I wish you were born to better parents. I wish I was born to better parents. I wish my dad hadn't killed himself before I was born. I wish my mom hadn't overdosed. I wish there was somebody who remembered Christmas from age 23 on earlier. I got no one to share that with. They don't exist anymore. I wish you had a better job circumstance. I wish you had a better school circumstance. I wish you had a better relational circumstance. I do. We don't decide those things. And there's all kind of complexity that leads us into the places where we are, but there is something that undergirds it all. Amen? And that is God's promise that he will provide for, remember, and be with his people always. And in the end, whatever it is circumstantially that's not fair, it will not have the eternal say on you. Amen? So who I was born to doesn't determine that I am bound to go to jail as I was told when I was young. Boy, the only hope for you was a GBI agent, actually. I don't remember his name. I should probably pray for him. But he told me, he said, you ain't ever going to amount to nothing. You're going to be just like your father, which was my stepdad, who spent 29 years in prison. He said, I will see you again someday. Why would you say that to a six-year-old? Felt like gravity for a long, long time. But it's not, is it? Not yet, anyway. I'm trying to stay out of jail, so I appreciate y'all praying for me. Let's turn back to the text. 3 through 13. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, 
his chief eunuch to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among those were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink for why should he, he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. And Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. Now what we have here is that the king is called for, and the language is very interesting here. He's called for the, the use of the nobility and, and of the kind of the upper crust, but he uses language that is actually often used with sacrifices. So there's a sense in which they're being called in almost as religious objects for his purpose. And Daniel's going to use also similar language when he says, I will not be defiled with the king's food. He's saying, I've already been set apart for a different purpose. Some argue and wonder if the reason that Daniel doesn't want to eat the food and drink the wine is because it's been sacrificed to idols. Let me ask you, those of you who know anything about Babylonian religion, who do they praise when a vegetable grows? Their God. Because through their sexuality and, and all the things that they do, he provides from the ground. So even the vegetables, you need to understand, would have been praised for their idolatry. So, so it doesn't make sense, and Daniel later on is actually going to eat of the king's food later in his life. So that doesn't seem to be the case here. He's actually pushing against something else. He's pushing against being assimilated. And he's using something that is very interesting that ties to Genesis 1.29. That God said, I will provide for you from the fruit of the trees and from the seed of the ground. And so Daniel is working very hard to make sure that at least two or three times a day, he will be reminded of the creator-creature distinction. Who he is and whose he is. Using food as a means of doing that. And the Lord honors it. Notice he gives him favor and compassion with a man who is more concerned for his life than someone else's. That's why that's in there, to show us that this head of the eunuchs is concerned more for himself than anyone else. And yet, he takes the bet and allows for Daniel and his friends to eat of this diet, that is vegetables and water. 
to see what they will look like when it's done. And Daniel offers himself up. He says, hey, if it doesn't work, then do with us as you please. Right? So it's not as if Daniel is being cocky or arrogant. He's saying, no, I'm just trying to obey the Lord. And in so doing, let's see what happens. Because I and we have been set apart. Notice that the scripture, when it mentions their name a second time, does it use their new Babylonian name? No. It uses their names that were given to them that actually exalt the Lord their God because their Babylonian names exalt other gods. And by changing their names, notice what King Nebuchadnezzar is doing. He's trying to just inundate and inculcate them with Babylonian culture over this three-year period so that they will do his work for him. The Nazis did this as well with many of the Jews, putting them in positions so that they would fool their own people making it easier for them to do what they needed to do. This is part of his program. He is setting himself up as God. He wants them to eat from his table to know, hey, I love you. I've provided for you. I've said this to my children as they wrestle with this issue of affluence. Once you get used to eating steak and lobster every night, you ain't voluntarily ever going back to ramen noodles. Ever. You're just not. I wouldn't, and you wouldn't. So Daniel understands that that they're trying to change him and his friends, and he's pushing against being assimilated and full in the culture. This is something that is very common to us, isn't it? We're constantly being inundated with messages and, and, and all of these kind of things that are priming us for certain things, right? Hollywood's been doing it for years. The table has been set for our current cultural set of issues. With sitcoms 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Now, if you think I'm being uh, a conspiracy theorist, no, it came from their own mouths. In fact, the guy who plays the dad on Modern Family said very clearly, I am so thankful to be a part of a show that is setting the table for the overturning of all of culture. I've never seen that show because I'm a Christian. I'm just kidding. But I get it. I see it all the time. You see it every, everywhere you look. It's being, whatever the, the idea du jour of the time is, is being inundated and pushed into everything. Books, movies, television. Because art is a wonderful vehicle, as well as affluence. Right? There's an issue that is coming for us as a church. Just read an article by Rod Dreher. It says, you have been warned. And that's actually a quote from a Baptist ethicist named David Gushy, who says, you conservatives have been warned. There's an issue that is coming for you that you will no longer be able to hide on, and you will not be able to be neutral. You will have to decide, and it's going to affect you financially. You will lose your tax-exempt status on one issue. That's a Baptist ethicist who at one time was, and I, just so you guys know, I hate the terms liberal and conservative. I think they're garbage. But we can have that conversation another time. However, just for the sake of what we're doing right now, he used to be a conservative by his own testimony. Now he's calling for the conservatives to be called out, identified, and dealt with. This just didn't happen in a vacuum. We've been being primed for it. There's a whole generation who think this is a non-issue. Why are we even talking about this? What does gender and sexuality have to do with anything anyway? 
mm, something to do with Genesis 1 and the creator-creature distinction, which Daniel's pushing against with food and we're pushing against with sexuality. We're being trained for something. Right? My thing is, just own it. Own what you are and what it is and own it all the way down. Don't think it's something else. Know what it is. Which is why I'm not trying to tell you what to think, but more how to think biblically. And that's the hope from the book of Daniel. And what we see from Daniel's example is that he's not allowing himself to be shaped. He's paying attention to what's going on. So let me ask you, what most shapes how you live? There's something that shapes how you live, you understand? Right? And if you don't know, if you're not thinking this through, you're being shaped by something that is running underneath the narrative in the background somewhere. It's like the old movies that used to flash the Coke thing. So subliminally, you'd suddenly go, I gotta have a Coke, man. I don't know where this is coming from. Right? It's, so if you don't know, if you are not working on and developing that which is shaping you, you are being shaped and you have no earthly idea what you're being fashioned into image-wise. So what most shapes how you live in the image into which you're being transformed? I would encourage you this Lord's Day Sabbath, take time to wrestle with this question, you and your family, because if you're not thinking this through, if you're not, if you're not on guard, am I, am I saying you can't see R-rated movies? Is that, is that the under-narrative here? No, that's not what I'm saying. But if you're going to look at certain things, which, by the way, if you read the account of Kayla Mueller, it's more difficult than any R-rated movie I think I've ever seen. And that's just news. But if you're going to engage in those things, you need to know what's going on. You need to have your eyes wide open. You should never watch Breaking Bad just for entertainment or The Wire or, or True Detective or Daredevil or Stranger Things even. It's not just entertainment. It's a narrative that is shaping our world, shaping us, fashioning us into some sort of image. Let us look at uh, verses 14 through 21. So Daniel is pushed against this idea of the king feeding him. He's pushed against being in Babylon, but not of Babylon. And let's see how the Lord who is faithful brings this to bear. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were, meaning Daniel and his friends, better in appearance and fatter in flesh, thus the Daniel diet, than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. <coughs> As for those four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. Let me pause. What literature? Chaldean literature. Not just biblical literature. They knew the stories and the language of the culture in which they resided. Paul gives us the same example. Jesus gives us the same example. It's important for us to understand the narratives that are shaping who and what we are so we can help them see how they are being shaped if we're going to do evangelism and discipleship. They gave them, uh, God gave them skill in literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in the brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found 
like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Let me pause again. Notice what names are being used. Daniel's pushing it. Our names have not been changed. We are still who we were, and this is who we are. He goes on, Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Now let me pause right there for a second. He's not comparing them to other youths. Who's he comparing them to? Native Babylonians who've bought into the project, who are the masters of these things. And yet, in just three short years, Daniel and his friends, by the sovereignty and gift and remembrance of God, are ten times better than the experts. What does that say to us about how we should excel in our own culture. Excel in understanding certain things based on the gifts we've been given. Notice they excelled based on what God provided. Not all of them had the same gifts because Daniel has this dreams and visions thing that's going to show up in chapter 2. This is how he actually is a prophet. He's different than the other prophets in this regard. And so they excel in even the very literature the ones into which they have been carried into exile. They are excelling in the literature of their enemies because they know that God is the God of all truth. And they know that you can use even the worst of what William Faulkner has written, even the worst of what Steinbeck has written to tell a good story and have an impact on the culture because the gospel bleeds in you can't keep it. That's the good news of God's faithfulness. You can no more remove him and his glory from this world. That project will fail. Take heart, sons and daughters. The project to eradicate God will fail. It's interesting. I'm reading a history of the PCA, and it's called For the Continuing Church. It's interesting to read the things that, man, they were all cranked up about in the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s, and they just thought the world was ending. In fact, Nelson Bell, who is uh, Billy Graham's father-in-law, made all these grandiose statements about the complete destruction of America come 1965. He proved, in an essence, a false prophet didn't happen. Now, you may say, well, <laughs> yeah, we're seeing it now. Fifty years later... Yeah, but it made us look like fools to say it way back then, the way they said it. And for why they said it? Because they were scared that communism was going to destroy everything. And yeah, they tried, and they're still trying. But have they had the final say? No. Is it the biggest issue in our world, truly? No, the human heart is. Always has been, always will be. And so these young men excelled, and God was the one who provided. Last verse tells us how long Daniel's going to be here. It says this, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So he goes in in 605, King Cyrus is 536 or so. Right away it tells us he will spend all 70 years in exile. His faithfulness does not buy him any less time in exile. 
His faithfulness does not bring him home. But what his faithfulness does do is glorify the Lord his God and bring about tremendous results for the kingdom. His faithfulness gives us a picture of Christ in the Old Testament. Listen to what Dale Ralph Davis says about this, which I find so beautiful. It dovetails well with something Wes shared with us in his sermon last week on Acts chapter 16. He said, observe also that God's grace is very quiet here. Right? This, is not, this isn't a verse like if I said, find me a verse in the Old Testament about God's grace, you probably wouldn't turn to Daniel 1 before now. That's a, this wonderful example. But he says, very quiet. Grace is there and at work, but doesn't create a stir or make a racket. It seems to work so naturally and unobtrusively. This is true for many of us. So many of us are looking for some whiz-bang supernatural experience as we take communion later this morning and here in just a couple of minutes. When uh, nothing goes on inside of us, we wonder. When we hear songs and don't have goosebumps, when things just don't seem to happen, we think God's not at work. Well, that's to suggest that God is not faithful, by the way, because he said he would be at work anytime his people gather together and his promises continue whether you feel it or not. That's critical for us to remember and live upon those promises because there's going to be times, right, when you're not wanna, you, you don't want to keep going on. In fact, don't freak out. But I turned to Susan on Friday after I'd read that story of Kayla Mueller and some other things as well, and I said, Susan, I need hope. How am I going to get up on Sunday and preach hope when this goes on? When all I want to do is put on a red leather suit and go over there and beat them up. I don't know why red leather, we're watching Daredevil, I, I don't know, okay? No. Something else, maybe black, I don't know. But I wanna handle it. Can I handle it, like a first flight to Syria? Right, you think it's gonna be okay when the white guy from America steps off in Aleppo? And he's like, all right, who was messing with Kayla Mueller? Step up, right? You guys will be watching video of me. And that's not, that's, that, that doesn't bring hope because we've been doing this for east, since east of Eden. This ain't new. We, we write this story over and over. It's tired, I'm tired of it. Come, Lord Jesus. And yet he tarries so the family can get bigger. And amen. So how has God provided for you in ordinary ways? How has grace seemed to just not make a stir and just been at work? For you, in the midst of some difficult circumstance, I've seen God do it so many times that I cling to it. And I can't, whenever I'm, I feel like I'm teetering off into the abyss and feel like I'm losing hope and uh, wondering what in the world I'm going to do since I lost my physical therapy license. Um, you know, I, it, it always brings me back the remembrance of God's goodness and how many times he's been faithful again and again and again and again. And I see it in many of you. So what do we learn from Daniel 1 for this? One, it teaches us that to endure difficult circumstances, we must remember God's sovereign faithfulness. You must take time to remember God's goodness and re recite his promises. The Lord's Day Sabbath is a wonderful opportunity to do that weekly. Two, that teaches us that we are to be in the world but not of the world and that we should be most shaped by the gospel. And we've got to ask how am I being shaped by these things? What is informing what I believe about the world and people and all these things? Three, that God remembers us and he gives us what we need in very ordinary ways to glorify him under difficult circumstances. Amen?